Welcome back to another episode of Ban This Podcast. This is the second part in a two-part interview that Ava and I had with uh, one of her close friends. In this episode, you get to see where the name Raging God Boner comes from. We also explore where you get your sense of purpose when uh, you lose your religion. And lastly, uh, we develop a new currency for feminism. <laughs> we had so much fun making this episode. As always, thank you everybody for your support. We're getting just a ton of new listeners and we really appreciate you listening. Uh, press like on whatever, whatever platform you're listening to this on right now. And uh, shoot, us a, shoot us an email if you have some feedback or uh, you just love what we're doing. Bandthispod at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. This is a really fun episode. I'm not going to hold you back. Eat for even one more second. Enjoy. Can I can I propose something potentially challenging? Yeah. It sounds like, and I'm only familiar with this because I'm it was something I experienced. It sounds like you ex- you don't extend judgment towards others. There's not like whatever you do, it's not good or bad. It's what you do. Is that sound right? Yeah, I would say that. Yes, absolutely. I would say that you extend that to others, but how much do you extend that to yourself? What do you mean? Because it sounds like good and bad are still part of your vernacular, still part of your ideology. Absolutely Be- not. Okay, it just sounded that way. Okay. No, no, no. I, I think, I think the good and bad are only part of my vernacular in so much that I think there are things that are damaging to society. Yes, totally. But Results. Think, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, and I think what's damaging to society is when people get um, locked into ideologies that force, yeah. force other people either into thinking... Uh, thinking ill of themselves or thinking, you know, uh, whatever. I, I think there are definitely things that are damaging to society and damaging to individuals. Yeah. And to me, that's how I reclassify it sure. bad. Yeah. That's what I think. But so bad. many people who came from where we came from still believe there is good and there is bad. Like, this action is inherently good and this action is inherently bad. But, like, that strips away context. That strips away reactions. That strips away perspective. You know what I mean? The good and bad is, is not a thing. There's only, like... What we do and how people perceive it, how we perceive yeah. it. Can I dig into? Can I be insufferable feminist for a minute? Sure, yeah. Insufferable. <laughs> no form of feminism is insufferable. Look at these wonderful <laughs> men sitting around me. Um, I'm in paradise right now. Do I get is, Do I get feminist bonus points? For yes. That? You're gonna give me the points, right? Okay. There's like it's like with Sonic, the Hedgehog. Yeah, yeah. Like, More rings. Yeah, yeah. The rings. You just hit them all the way. Um, they're new for rings. They're <laughs> Um, but you know I love that you brought up your mom and you brought up your mom and something that I think is always really fascinating to me is is as much as as we talk about this big idea of how your lives change because of where you were brought up there's a lot of it also that has to do with the fact that you were both young men so can you talk a little bit about how your relationship to women changed with this, all these changes that are going on in your life. How did your church view women? Maybe how your mom played a part or didn't? So I grew up um, extremely misogynistic. Like the women served men. The man was the head of the household. It's probably not far from where you grew up. Um, women's role were to serve their husband. Their, their job was to get married and give their husband babies, things like that. Very archaic sounding, yeah. but was the reality of the situation. The, however, that didn't really jive with reality right out, the, right out the gate because, I mean, today I don't talk to my dad. I haven't talked to him in years, but I talk to my mom 
couple times a week. I go visit her. They're not together now. No, okay. they've been apart for fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. Thank God, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> um, I just want guys to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like I, I mean, that didn't really like sink in for me because I kind of I don't know. I think it was my mom, but I never really saw women as lesser than, even though that was what I was taught, and that 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 philosophy never really sunk in for me I mean I talked that way a little bit but it never really it never really resonated because I ended up treating all of my girlfriends with massive amounts of respect maybe too much respect because I think for the most part most of my female relations tend to be from trying to protect my mom from the abuse of my dad mm. and so a lot of it is just protecting women from abusive men so that's kind of that's where I've been and that's where I still am so it's not too complicated for me interesting how about you um I was Again, similar similar um, social constructs and gender roles where women were not to lead in the church. Um, they were not to lead in the house. The, the, the analog between male-female relationship in a household was very similar to, or was made toward the relationship between Christ and the church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? So... Um, the church was Christ's bride. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. But For people who aren't familiar. <laughs> the interesting thing is... Um, as much as I feel like we embraced really, you could argue, archaic gender roles in the church, I would say that the relationship between Christ and the church was actually quite sacred to me. And so even in that particular construct, I, I never felt like women were lesser than, in fact, they were sort of worshipped. In a sense. But, like, worship in a way that they needed to be protected and, like, isolated. For me, that's what I'm talking about. Right, right. I, no, for me, it was like... I mean, Jesus died for the church, right? Um, and so I think it was such a... That relationship was stressed so much that, for me, um, those gender roles didn't actually create a sense of misogyny in a way where women were relegated to certain things or less than, or even from an authority standpoint, less than. Mm. Um, it was just a matter of, like... These were these were sort of like the ethical roles that you were to take. Men, the masculinity at a certain level of like self-sacrifice, at a certain level of leadership, but leadership from um, a, um, a servant leadership sort of perspective. Hmm. And I, I really actually appreciated the way that we interpreted those those things in the church. Whereas I think my my relationship to women and my philosophy toward Feminism has changed quite a bit, but I think it had a pretty decent, as good as foundation as you can get in Christianity. Um, what about like women as architects of temptation? We didn't have that. Yeah, actually, really? we, we didn't actually have that either. Really? I mean, like, do you think a woman there wasn't in your church would agree with you guys? Uh, so I've thought of this. Yeah. Um, we never like in at least from my perspective as a guy, our church normally like slut shame women. Mm. It was almost like. Guy and girl were equally culpable for... Interesting. It was very similar here. Yeah. Did anybody ever... Did you any girls ever get pregnant? Oh my church? god, yes. The pastor's daughters always what? got pregnant. The pastor's daughters How were the first ones to get pregnant. I, this is blowing my mind a little bit right now. But the thing is, you can't hold a misogynistic, you know, slut-shaming perspective when the pastor's daughters are the first ones to get pregnant. Fuck, man. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think... Yeah. I, I, I think what's interesting is so the evolution that I the evolution of my perspective to now is simply revolves around gender roles 
like I believe um, I think there's much my, my stances in roles are way more fluid but in yeah. terms of my actual um, I guess perspective of, of equality it, it didn't need to evolve that much I think our church was actually re- interesting, interestingly um, really respectful toward women mm-hmm. in spite of some of the language that was used in the Bible. Interesting. And it was really crazy because like, we had all of this like, really insane interpretation of the Bible. Like, yeah. I could tell you, like, all the way from you know, speaking in tongues to being slain in the sphere to people not going, wow. to, the, not going to the the hospital when they had cancer. No. Oh, yeah. 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 No, it was like, so we... That's more taboo to me than anything is denial of medical care. <laughs> no. no our, seriously. Our church was, I, I'm going to say this with as much care as possible, like, I, I would define it as a cult. Yeah. Like, when, when it really came down to it, there were very cult-like things that encouraged a sense of, like, weird sense of community, a weird sense of exclusivity toward the outside world. Wow. Assemblies of God? or what No, was, no, no. What it was, was the denomination? Well, it was technically Mennonite, but it was oh. also very fundamental. It was very like evangelical, very Pentecostal. Pentecostal Mennonite? Yep. Can, you guys, can you guys describe this for, for the audience, like these bewildered Jews that don't <laughs> so, 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 so I have no I have actually no idea what Mennonite means from a do- from a like um actual like it, religious yeah. standpoint, theology standpoint. No idea. Like history though, maybe. No like, idea. Like, I have no idea. All I know is that in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you have the Mennonites that wore the little head covering yeah, things that were Amish, and then you have the Mennonites that were like, we're going to speak in tongues and stick to the wall, fall on the floor and use smoke machines yeah, during yeah. our rock and roll. Smoke machines? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it was, it was like, it was like, Sunday morning was an emotional, if, if nothing, it was like an theatrical. emotional, theatrical. Oh, you're um, talking about Wednesday night. Oh, we got down on Wednesday night. Right. <laughs> so can I, can I reveal a little bit of a something as well, which is yeah. that you were... A Christian rock star. I was a Christian rock oh, star. Oh shit! What happened? What, what? What? You had a rock band? Okay. Are you kidding? Um, are you are you putting me on? Is that what's going on? <laughs> Here's the thing. Okay, so a little tangent. While well, Ava uh, excuses herself to get more of my cheese. Um, no, um, it's not cheese. I'm getting some other substance. Um. So there's there was a certain amount of like fame in being a worship leader that gets you a certain level of attention Mm -hmm. and because it's so wrong to have um, sex you you take attention from what you can get Mm. and yes I was I had a certain level of um, I had a certain level of like draw with the ladies as (laughs) as As a rock star I I feel like I gotta cut for just a second and say that Francis is an extraordinarily handsome man. Yes, he is. He's a very good-looking guy. So just like, imagine a very well-groomed, like, chiseled... Black, salt and pepper. Salt and pepper. <laughs> yeah. And then now imagine he's holding a guitar and has, like, a cute little, like, beanie Yeah, see, I'm wet already. Yeah. <laughs> Stop, you guys. But, but there was, there was this um, aspect of, of leading worship where you were emotionally manipulative. It wasn't. It was a form of emotional manipulation, where you you play music to to create an environment that people could essentially interact with God. Mm-hmm. Imagine, like, if you were any sort of megalomaniac, what that would do. 
Because, like, if the pastor started swelling this, like, message, and you started, like, getting, you know, crazy on the piano and drums and blah, 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 and then people got into it, I mean, people would start to weep, run around the church. No, I'm not even shitting you. People would fall on the floor and convulse. And because of the music you made. Yeah. So, like, you want to talk about, like, a raging god boner. <laughs> like, raging god boner. That's the name of this episode. Yes, raging god boner. Yeah, so I had a raging god boner. And then I realized, like, oh, my God, I'm a, ma- a manipulative sociopath who's using religion to get my jollies off because I can't fuck many people. And it just was the worst sense of, um, like, when that, when it really, when I really realized what what even the tiny little bit of like influence I had as a worship leader at a tiny little you know country church like it was it made me feel awful there's a lot of like post exit reconciliation I had to do with some of these identity things that related to just like you know you feel this sense of like shit I'm a, I'm a terrible person for ha- for having felt this way for so many years and and again even in the notion that there is no defined right and wrong I know who I want to be I know what type of person I want to construct and it's like when you when you have the veil lifted from your eyes and you look at some of the things that you've done it's like ah just a tremendous sense of regret yeah you know and I think that the when you think about regret who is it you're worried about disappointing myself same yeah and I, I still struggle with one one element of my upbringing, though. For, first of all, going back to the women stuff, I, I had to get over protecting and, you know, like, you know, taking care of women and, like, thinking women are, like, this delicate thing that you need to, like, oh, I need to be fostered and oh, <laughs> coddled, you know what I mean? Like, I had to get over that shit. But then after I got over that shit, I was like, okay, there's nothing else left, right? No, no, there's this underlying theme that I'm deathly afraid on a constant daily basis that I will easily snap into being the manipulative, sociopathic person my dad is. Oh, man. I think we all took an intake of breath right there. Just because, like, that's a... You worry that something inside you is... You inherited it. I fully have that ability, by the way. I was trained by a Jedi fucking master in manipulation, (laughs) and I have that whole skill set. I know in every situation, I constantly, cognitively run into situations where I go, I can easily manipulate this person and get exactly what I want, or I can treat them like a fucking human being. You know what I mean? And that, that pops into my head constantly. I'm terrified, terrified that I'll be the unempathetic sociopathic manipulator. Do you still feel those, like... Two pieces of war? Um, I, I think n- maybe not as much because I feel like I've overcompensated a lot. I, I think I'm struggling at this point with th- the notion that I've called so many things into question yeah. for so long. I'm actually struggling. So uh, a different way to put this thought is that you, you recognize that your gut feeling is wrong. Yes. And the problem is that as human beings, our gut feeling, we've, we've evolved this sense of a gut feeling as an abstraction for making decisions. That's really good. Yeah. You know, if something's hot, you don't go toward it because you're like, I'll get burnt. You trust your you gut. Don't, you don't have to yeah. think about the scientific implications of why it would be bad if you got burned. You just don't. It's an instinct. And I think there's moral instincts that you have, when you have to retrain all of those, it's so fucking fatiguing. 
You're just like, wh- like, can I just have a good gut instinct for once? I'm nodding my head throughout this entire thing. So, yeah. so <laughs> no one can see you nodding your head. <laughs> so uh, I'm, my struggle now, though, is that, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm less afraid that I'm going to slip into old ways. It's just that I want, from a, like from a misogyny or sociopathic standpoint or manipulative standpoint, I just want to find some, like, stability in my own initial gut reaction to the universe so I don't have to constantly be thinking about things. And here's one example. So I have a good friend who's gay. I have several good friends who's gay, but one good friend from from Pennsylvania who was gay, who was also a worship leader, who also was closeted for many years. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I, I, we, you know, we're sort of out of touch at this point, but, like, I had watched his progression. You know what I mean? And then finally he, like, came out of the closet and he was like, hey, like, I'm gay. And, like, he just got disowned by the church. And his journey was just really, really difficult. Yeah. But I tell you what, when the first time I saw him kiss a guy on the lips, I had a visceral, like, oh, what the hell are you doing, man? Same. That's disgusting. Yeah. And But in my mind, I was like, wait, there's literally nothing wrong with this. Yeah. But, like, right here, like, in my heart... Something feels wrong. And what's funny is, like, that was taught to me as a kid is my conscience, right? And, you know, or your gut reaction to something. And that's, you generally regard that really highly. And if I have kids ever, like, I'm going to teach them as well as I can. But part of, you know, part of that abstraction that you form is good. Because if you're, if, if you're taught well, and if you have a good framework for, for living, it can help you abstract some of the thought that's required in determining as, like with a snap decision if something's like something to engage with or something to defend against or something yeah. to, to, to remove. Like if and, you, and your gut can cut past some of the bullshit you're tossing too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So like if you say somebody getting punched in the face, you might go defend him yeah. or her or whatever. So like that's a gut reaction that's like instinctive that's very, very good. It's social grooming. It allows you to like you know, um, defend the weak. And, like, that's baked into human society. And we've right. evolved into, like, a society that, that actually values compassion and empathy for, for a variety of reasons. But these, this particular thing that I'm, I'm talking about was the interaction between two guys. I was thought that being gay was, like, reprehensible. Yeah. I mm-hmm. saw this happen. I had already crossed this thought process of, like, um, of, uh, of being gay. Was, there was no moral repercussions to being gay. You're yeah. totally fine. But... The instinct was was like distaste, and at that moment I was like, "Wow, I I need to take some moments here, and consciously retrain my gut." Yeah. So when I see that, I want to be able to see two guys kiss, and not have that feeling, because I just I need to retrain that because like I know what I want to be and who I am and they're different. Yeah. And what that, you believe and what your gut that, believes. That exemplifies like twenty. No, that exemplifies like a hundred different axes on my moral compass where I needed to sort of really take stock at my reaction to things and then retrain myself. And one of them was toward women, but in a general standpoint. Like right now, um, I mean, uh, you know, Ava, you and I met Mm -hmm. and we we have, you know, I, I sort of learned about femdom for the first time. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm a bit of a crash course. You're, that you're an evangelist. So <laughs> I, I didn't find it um, exceptionally difficult to sort of get on board. Yeah. Um, but I, 
that that was a pro that was a, as a result of the years of, of sort of untraining. Yeah. Because I tell you what, like you know, seven years ago, the thought of um, female uh, dominance on any regard, sexually or just even in terms of like household leadership, would have been like, oh, it's yeah. just reprehensible. Yeah. And, and, and like, I was actually kind of proud of myself, like getting to know you and sort of like actually for the, one of the first times in my adult life, not actually having any sort of retraining required. Yeah. It was actually sort of refreshing. It's one of the reasons I really appreciate our friendship among a million. But like one of them is like, it was actually quite easy for me to be like, this feels really nice and I don't have to work so hard at retraining that. But there are so many different aspects to, to growing out of the church that requires that. And if you don't take a very proactive, very intentional, um, you know, step or steps to try to retrain yourself, you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> Amen, brother. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> and, and, you know, I know that in the context of the, the conversation and finding out a little bit more about femdom and just kink and exploring other facets of, you know, things like non-monogamy, um, you know, you had read some of my writing, and it was, you know, this idea of, of being valued. That's at the core of, of for me, a lot of, of things around femdom, and, and particularly my relationship to people. Um, to feel valued at that core, that core empathy, I think it runs through all things. And I think what one of the most, like, miraculous things that you get to, especially as an adult, in your self-acceptance of, like, yourself as a sexual person, is that you realize that all those things that form your, your core idea of yourself, you're not violating them. You don't have to give them up. You can grow and become an adult person. And so I'm going to ask you both a very possibly sensitive question. Um, if you were to go talk to the person at the height of their internal like compartmentalization conflict, what would you say? I, as the first person to speak, this is going to be ironic. Uh, and who is this? Who is this person you're talking to? Are they 17? Are they 16? Yeah, I'm guessing they're like 16, dude, probably struggling with like personal identity, sexuality, stuff like that. I think the first thing I would say was, um, I've been through a lot, and but I'm just here to listen because I feel like a lot of the times one of the biggest pieces is just somebody who can easily listen and not judge you because. When you're growing up religious, the, for me, one of the biggest things was there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of good and bad. Mm -hmm. And so to have somebody just be able to listen to you and hear what you're saying and, and listen to your struggle without judgment, for me, would have been radically changing. Mm -hmm. And I think if I could share that, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Are you? What would you say? Um, I would encourage this person. I, I would make it very clear that the journey ahead is going to be really difficult. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, one of the things that you said, Drew, that was interesting and, and resonated with me was like, you're, t you're taught that the winning side always wins, you know, or that the good things are always easy. This notion that like the natural order of things is Christianity. The natural order of things is this moral framework and that all rivers will sort of like flow in that direction, which is absolutely false. Mm -hmm. And when you're in that scenario, um, if I were talking to somebody who is just, you know, at, the, at this peak of uh, this breaking point, the, the thing I would want to, it's almost like if I were a doctor talking to a cancer patient, uh, the, what you need to say is there's, there's, there's unequivocally that you're going to have a really 
really difficult time. Don't like sugarcoat it. It's mm-hmm. really hard. Um, because I think one of the things that's important to do is steal yourself for, and almost embrace the pain a little bit, embrace yeah. the uncertainty, and embrace this notion that you have to think hard and you have to struggle and that it's okay. Yeah. Because it, if you sort of feel, if you already indoctrinated that everything good is easy, it's just, you constantly feel like, am I, you constantly struggle with a sense of, um, like, validation of this, did I, like, you constantly feel lost. Yeah. Which is very ironic considering the Christian vernacular of people being lost. <laughs> but you feel so lost. Yeah. And you feel um, invalid and you feel unvaluable and just feel like like a constant struggle and I just think it's like important to tell somebody that you're going to feel that and that's 100% if you feel that you're doing something right (laughs) right yeah yeah. because like you need that sense of like you need to be bolstered so that you have the stamina to continue through that journey Mm. one of the interesting things that Paul the Apostle Paul said and I'll quote him just to piss him off (laughs) is that he's like one of the verses was that you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling Mm -hmm. and I think I actually kind of love that if there's one verse of the New Testament that I really love it's that you have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling I always read that very differently but in this light I like it a lot I love that I like it a lot it's gonna like you you absolutely it's gonna it's a struggle everyone has to make their own identity. Everyone has to make their own meaning, and you have to make sense of this—the cards that you're dealt. And it's not easy. And as a Christian, when you're taught that God is on your side and you have all the answers, and there are no gray areas, that like this sense of instability is—you need to turn it into a feeling of victory versus a feeling of defeat. Mm-hmm. And so I would absolutely like lead with that. I think. You know that's that brings a really interesting point. One of the things that was jarring, that if you would have said to me at, at 19, would have been extremely jarring, but now I find great comfort in, is that, is, is perspective and it's context. How do you contextualize your life? Because a lot of the times we struggle with a sense of purpose and what am I supposed to be doing? And like, what are all these things that, are like, what does my life mean? And like, with religion, it has a sense of meaning. In the absence of religion, ah, oh, there's nothing to hold on to, really. And that's what's so terrifying is that I think that, like, I haven't, I didn't grow up with these questions. Right. You know, and, and so, like... So you weren't built up for this thing and then let down. No, <laughs> no. Like, I feel like my sense of purpose feels very natural to my life now. And well, I you. feel... Like, <laughs> no, I, mean, I, feel, I feel so lucky. I feel like this conversation has made me feel impossibly good. lucky. Good. Yeah, good. That, that, you know, and also that, that somebody, that somebody else had said to me once is so true, which is that... Um, everybody's going through something. It's true. And, you know, especially in the context of dating, like when you're, you're meeting people and they don't always act the way you want or they give you answers that are confusing or it doesn't always work out, I think it's helped me, and, you know, you talk about forming a new ethic, to remember that everybody's going through something. And it's not always going to be visible in the context of my dating relationship with this person. And so that's what I think is, is really remarkable is to hear that, like, um, this interiority of everything that you are trying to be or to do or consider yeah. in the course of the adult you're going to become. And, and I should note for the purpose of the podcast, these are both men in their 30s. Like, <laughs> you know, we're, not, we're not all like finding ourselves like right. in gap year or something. Um, but that, that, that's a conscious choice and a problem and a challenge that you're experiencing all the time is, and I consider myself quite a 
you know, worldly person, it's still surprising and yeah. good in a good way. So one of the things that would have been really jarring for me as a young person, especially like 19, is like, what is Drew's life in the context of a thousand years? Like, what does what what everything that I've done mean over that time? So with religion, that means I go to heaven and eternity with God, right? Yeah. In the absence of religion, almost nothing, nothing I do matters. There might be, if I'm lucky, I might be one of the thousand people in the next hundred years that does something that's notable and I'm in a history book. But for, for real, for all intents and purposes, everything I do, this is going back to the nihilism, everything I do doesn't actually matter. And, and I can damage people and that's really easy and, really, and that will leave a fucked up perspective with everybody that I touch, which would be overall in my perspective shitty. Or I can work hard and add value to the people around me and that won't matter in a thousand years, but it will matter to me now. You, it's, and, such, and, it's such a Christian thing to say that says it won't matter. Because the concept of matter, like, we, we're so, I'm going to speak for both of us, we're so ingrained with the sense of things needing to matter. Right, but what I was talking about is what matters to me now is so much more important than what matters is, a thousand years in the future. And this is what blows, I just had my mind blown a little bit in the course of this conversation, because I had never thought about up till this point that if you had always grown up with this concept of eternity, right. of eternal it salvation... It fucks up your whole thing. Right? Nervous, <laughs> but, then, but then to suddenly go from eternity, eternity, to, to having eternity cut short. To not, not eternity. Cut short, <laughs> not even to a lifetime, but to a moment, because if your life doesn't even matter, if your life doesn't even matter, then like all that really kind of matters is this exact moment. Yeah. And it's, such, it's so jarring, it's profoundly jarring. And I have never had eternity. Right. No, and that is like and that's and that's a weird thing to think about. I don't I didn't know I didn't have eternity. You know, so I, I, it's like a dog with three legs. You just run. You don't know. You're used to running legs. with three legs. Yeah. I have three legs. I don't I've never had eternity. I've always just had one life and this is it. I get a beginning, I get a middle and I get an end. Yeah. And everything I do in the middle has to like only matter to me in my life. And what a burden. It I, must I feel thought, to be I, you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I thought every action meant something in eternity to everybody forever. Oh, what a sense of like, like ult- this like ultra permanence, like but ultra you, violence. You think getting rid of that would be a relief, but it's not. It leaves you stranded. You're like, I thought I was in a river. Oh, it turns out I'm in the middle of the ocean. You know what oh I mean? Like, God. there's no more sense of purpose. There's no direction. I felt such an intense sense of relief after not that long ago. Because there was such a weight, such a gravity to everything. When I actually relinquished the sense of eternity, um, I mean, so when, even when, you know, when I was a Christian, one of the things I struggled with as I was thinking about, do you have a soul, etc., was where, where does the center of your consciousness lie? If I were to take slices of your body, starting with your feet, this is disgusting, but like, if I were to do that <laughs> and work my way up, yeah. when would you cease to be you? And, you know, and like, what if, you know, when did you, when after cutting away layers of your brain, do you finally just cease to exist? Um, and I had a con- uh, concussion, a really serious one when I was in my 20s. And I had woken up and um, my wife at the time was like, I-, I woke up to her face in the hospital and I was unconscious for several hours. And I was like, oh my God. I feel like I'm finally able to make sense of the world around me for the first time. And she's like, 
You said that like 60 times. <laughs> oh, my God. The, the hair on my neck stood up. I remember the last time I said that, yeah. obviously. You don't remember the first 59 times? The first 59 times I said that, and it was, and I completely forgot and said it again, which to me, obviously not having, having the testimony that I have, not having any recollection, really drove home the point that we are consciousness. Consciousness is just us being aware of the, con- the continuity of our memories. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. sort of it. Um, Which is a horrible feeling when you go from, like, my life has a sense of purpose, everything has meaning, oh God, God put me on this earth for a reason. It's horrible. And, and then you go to, oh, whatever I remember, that is reality. It's <laughs> <laughs> super comforting to me, though. Um, I mean, this is, it's, not, it's a trope at this point, but, like, someone said, um, you didn't care, uh, that you were dead in like the year 1500. Yeah. Right? And you will not care that you're dead in the year 2500. You won't care that you're dead the second after you die. Yeah. yeah. So what it means is it adds such, such weight to your life now, which gives you wonderful purpose as you are alive. It lets you, you know, plan for things that outlive you in a really profound way. But what's really crazy about it is you can live in the comfort that when you die, you, you won't care. <laughs> and, and there is something cool about and that. really the only thing that matters is your perspective on your life that is the sense that's where meaning comes from meaning doesn't come from an outside thing I always thought meaning came from an outside thing I was given meaning by somebody else oh that's but, such a good point and now I'm realizing oh meaning meaning only is what I determine what meaning is and when I stop giving anything meaning it stops having meaning to me Correct. and that's all yeah. that meaning is you know and it's tough because you know again like you were saying as a Christian you are given a purpose by God, whatever that might be. And, and a lot of your life is, uh, surrounds finding that purpose and then yeah. fulfilling that purpose. Yeah. And there's so much guilt surrounding, like, what if I stray? What if I don't fulfill my purpose? What is my yeah. purpose? Is this the purpose? Is and this again, the purpose? not only is the purpose like, your life, but it's, it, it relates to eternity. Yeah. Not only is it like, oh, maybe I need to be a missionary just to Africa because everyone yeah. knows Africa needs missionaries. <laughs> it's like, that. We're, we need to do that. Right. And if I fuck it up, I've affected like an eternity's worth of souls. No pressure. Yeah. And so, like, when you said meaning is what you make of it right now, and it may have ripple effects for decades or centuries or millennia, or it might not, who, give, who gives a shit? Because, like, you could do that, and that would be wonderful, and it would be a privilege and be lucky to have that sort of influence. Sure, yeah. But at the end of the day, to you, you can only do your best, and that's actually good enough. Mm-hmm. Y'all stand the fucking pressure. <laughs> Holy crap! You stop. So you masturbate vigorously. <laughs> <laughs> I can attest to that. I can one hundred percent attest to that. <laughs> Just constant masturbation. <laughs> now, do you think that um, in your relationships currently with your parents, like both of you, to me, just knowing you as my friends, you're both very happy people, and you're both very successful people. Like we've been talking a lot, a lot of heavy stuff here. But I think neither of you still, like, self-flagellate or stay awake at night tortured by the person you were or the person you were going to be. Um, and so you're happy. And I find that, like, happy and healthy people are contagious and, and people can't help but often be enthralled by that. Do you think that your parents could ever accept ha- your happiness? Do they see the way that you've improved? Are they, are they proud of you in any way? Uh. I would have to say, I, 
on most of the time I am I am happy. I would not describe myself as a happy person because happiness is not something I seek anymore. It's now just satisfaction or fulfillment. Yeah. So like what I want is a sense of yeah, that feels good. Like I I'm enjoying that. So you're a fucking hedonist. I am a hedonist, hundred <laughs> percent to the T to the definition of a hedonist. And the, one of the best parts about this is that my personal progression has correlated or is has correlated directly to my mom's personal development. So my mom is becoming more open-minded. She's more focused on being her own individual person with her own beliefs. Um, she still holds onto a lot of Christian stuff. She still has like a lot of that, that language associated with like how she views the world. But she accepts me for who I am, and I'm able to share more and more with her every single year. I don't ever hold anything back. I don't talk to her about sex because that's just weird. But yeah. <laughs> but like besides that, I don't hold anything back. I like she talks about this, this, and God, and I go, ah, there's no God. And she's like, shut up. <laughs> and it's just kind of a fun dynamic between us because like she accepts that I'm a backslidden heathen hedonist, and I accept that she's a religious, um, you know, happy person who's focused on her own desires, and we can actually really respect each other because. Between the two of us, one of the core philosophies that we both finally accepted is that what I want is actually most important. And as, and as long as I'm, I'm being an added value to the people around me, that makes me happier. And that makes, that makes life more worth living. But my dad is a religious asshole, so we don't talk. How long has it been since you talked about I don't know, like four years, three or four years? Yeah. yeah. And how about you? Do you think there's any part of your parents that's like, Happy for your happiness, or um, my so, my mom and dad are both in their seventies. Yeah. So to contextualize, my mom is fifty-two. <laughs> yeah. My, my mom and dad are both in their seventies, and I think one of the things just uh, we have to call it out that's real to them is end of life. Yeah. Um, situations. Um, you know, death and dying. Figuring out what it means when you have your to-do list, your bucket list cut down, pretty short. And, you know, when you, when you face that notion of, like, dreams no longer being possible, you really have to wrestle with, with that. Yeah. And I sense that in my parents, and, and them having such a strong Christian worldview, that notion of eternity is now very important for them. Yeah. Because that's, that's, all, that's all they have to hold on to. have left. Yeah. Because that's, that's what contextualized the last 25, 30, 40 years of their lives. And so... Again, who am I to take that away? But also, that is definitely the, the starting point from almost any opinion that they have. Um, do you think you have the power to take that away, though? Like, do you think you, like, with some magic words, you can change their perspective? Is there anything perspective? you can say? No, but I can be a total dick. Sure. You know? <laughs> I absolutely. Like, I could, you know, it, it's almost like, you know, don't yuck my yum. Like, if I were, if I, if I, if you were like, man, I really love... Name a band, and they'd be like, "Ah, oh, they're so derivative and bullshit." Mm. Did I take away the fact that you loved that that band? That mm. band? Probably not, but you're like, it colored it yeah. in a way that made you enjoy it less. You only put struggle between the two of us. Yeah, and, I like a thing, and, you're and imagine I was a beautiful person that you wanted to have a relationship with, and then I said that. Not only would it, not only would it affect you as a one human to another, but then you'd be like, "This is a person who I value their either uh, input." And they don't like the band that I like. And it's sort of, like, should that have any material impact in the fact that you like this band or not? No, but it sort of does. I'm, I'm my parents' only son. 
do you think that you should be judging or shaming their religiosity? Or no. is that an instinct that is The instinct you? is there, but what I'm oh. saying is like to answer the question, could I take that away? The answer is no, I couldn't take it away, but I could make their lives shitty. You yeah. know? And you could put a gap between the two. And I could yeah. put a gap between us. And that's the thing. Yeah. So like I feel like in the last few years even I've learned a lesson to I mean I'm not gonna lie to them and tell them I'm I'm you know, subscribe to their worldview, but I am definitely gonna try to to not constantly drive a wedge there. Yeah. So yeah, I mean but but at the same time they're proud of me. Um my dad is a very passive man. Um and he he a lot of the things that he's experienced was because I almost forced him to experience it in different ways. Um and I think my dad, in a weird way, I feel like a father to my father. In a the lot of versus so real. It's it's very strange. But credit to him for like not fighting that in a way that divides you two. True. Right. Yeah, where where I see a little bit of resistance from my mom in in that sort of regard. Um, but I mean, I think that they're proud of me. I I think that um, the struggle at this point is trying to trying to maintain a relationship without. Um, driving a wedge because there's such such poignant political divisiveness between me and my parents and um, again like if they if they are talking about end of life things when my mom's like I know what I'm gonna where I'm gonna be when I die you know isn't that fantastic I have to say yeah that's fantastic mm-hmm. even though it feels even though, hurtful even yeah exactly do you um do you find them being proud of you an important thing to you. Um, is that important to you? Is that important to them? Is that important to both? I don't. I personally don't find any validation whether my parents think they're, they're proud of me or not. Oh, and see, this, this is the thing that I don't have. What? Like, I struggle all the time because, like, I don't have I don't have a god that's proud of me. I don't have this like doctrine of way I'm supposed to be. Your only approval comes from your parents, hmm. and I. I yeah, but Francis and I are not there. Like, yeah, I mean, it, but like for me, I feel I feel the absence. Yeah, I feel the absence of approval and and my parents being proud of me, and that's like it's very cutting. Even mm-hmm. I'm 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 31 years old. It yeah. still feels like a big black hole. And so, in a way, it's interesting because like, you know, I can see how much both of you struggle internally with purpose. In a way, it's good. I think it's healthy struggle. Right. And. Then where does that, you know, if you're just hoping that your parents are fulfilled people, where does that sense of, like, approval come from? Nowhere. Nowhere. Yeah. Internally. If at all. (laughs) And, and, and. One of the major struggles I've had with women in the last six or seven years is that I struggled, I struggled to find a lot of a sense of approval through women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where if... There was a definite period of time where in dating, um, you know, I, I wasn't, through, in my life I wasn't always like in shape and I wasn't always attractive on any level whatsoever. And so um, being able to have sex with anyone you want, theoretically, being, um, you know, comfortable in your own skin and having no framework for validation and acceptance, it's very easy to look for that in women. And the, have the whole nice guy syndrome, where mm-hmm. rather than being, you know, honest and respectful of women, there's a faux respect 
um, it's like misogyny masquerading is respect so that you can get what you want in um, by way of validation. Yes. And that's an absolute disrespect and a terrible way to treat women. But it's so pernicious because it looks it looks like you're respecting women. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in a way, you're just kind of you're condescending them. them. Yeah. You're using them for your own validate, validation. And when they're as a Christian, as an ex-Christian, I think that's a very important thing to be wary of and to protect yourself from, or at least be aware of, because I think it's easy to fall into that trap where you look for validation from the other person as the as a primary output for the relationship, as opposed to saying, here's another person, let's build something together. And to, to pull back to this point and, and just sit on it for a second, I've only ever been the person who's on the receiving end of that struggle. Mm. So, like, I've had multiple people here in the Bay Area, specifically, you know, in my 30s, you date people and you hope that, like, at least for me, being in a relationship is important to me. And when it comes to the point when dating somebody where you would say, like, okay, well, where do you want this to go? Maybe you've been out literally sometimes 12 dates. Like, come on. Um, and they would say, I lost my virginity late. I'm still catching up or I'm still finding myself. And, you know, so I don't want to commit to anything right now. And that can be, especially for a woman who's put a lot of work into knowing who they are and working on it, you know, like figuring out what it is, my purpose. And I don't have something else to tell me. I've always had to be self-determining. Right. Do you ever worry that, like, your struggle to, like, figure out who you are, that you're going to, like, damage other people? Oh, or and how do you mitigate? Yeah, no, that's that's the crux of the issue. Yeah, right. That's that's the that's the real terrible, pernicious aspect of this like, um, the nice guy syndrome. It's absolutely horrible uh, misogyny masquerading as being a you know a kind yeah so a self exploitation but also even like. Um, uh, being sensitive to women, being respectful of women, th- with the intent of trying to validate your own masculinity, whatever that means. And it's really damaging. Because you only actually realize the damages after the fact. And it's, it can be really convincing to women who don't understand that. <laughs> yeah. And no, no, to no fault of them, but for real. Like, I, it's almost like I wish, as a guy, I could create this like, emergency broadcast system. Like, no, I'm serious. Like, the problem is, like, guys need to figure this out. But to your point, yeah. you, you damage people in the process. And if you could, if there's only a way to, like, not do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or there's a way to, like, self-adjust um, those attitudes without having to go through this horrible process. And the thing is, honestly, I haven't really determined an alternative process other than failing a lot. And yeah. I think it's... Um, a systemic issue that needs to be worked out at a more societal level where we need to like think about I mean it's it's the intersection of religion and you know rape culture and you know feminism and all of these things working together to create a more proactive environment in which men can grow up to be actual productive members of society which we're not there right now like I, I think there's so many things working against men growing up to be good men that like no wonder we're living in the situation that we're living in yeah I mean you know you, you're pulling out something here that I think is very hard for a lot of adult men so 
knowing both of you and knowing both of you as my friends, you are people who have managed to come to the fork in the road and you, you pick the road less traveled by, which is that your struggle to figure out who you are and what's good and what you want, you, you bring it on yourself. And we denied our religion and yeah. we gave up our social circles. Yeah, and, 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 and then also that you don't also blame women for your behavior or society or something else. Like you, You're like, this is a struggle of my own morality internally. And that, unfortunately, we make it very difficult for men to do this introspective work. Um, we make it very hard to admit fault and failure. We make it very hard to say that um, I held internalized misogyny, uh, homophobia, uh, like heterosexism, I have like this gut response. And I would say like, what would you hope that men who they, they have your experience, but they go down the other path? Like they become some kind of like MRA or, What's you know, MRA? men's rights activists. Oh, Jesus Christ. Or they, they like, in some way they come to, to reappropriate that moralization of how your behavior comes to be and who affects it, but they blame women or, you know, whatever it is instead of internalizing, like, their own sense. What would you hope that they could take from this? So here's what I would say, first and foremost. I would say that most MRAs yes. would describe themselves as nice guys. Yeah. And as a former nice guy, I can, I can adamantly say, and somebody who's been friends with many, many nice guys, I can adamantly say that nice guys are fucking assholes. And here's why. And <laughs> yes. here's why. Nice guys are fucking assholes because they tippy-toe around women, they coddle women, they treat women as something to be protected, like I was talking about earlier with the whole religion yeah. thing. They're no longer seeing them as another person. Like, I understand the whole idea that by dating people, you can inherently damage them. I can't damage anybody. Yeah. All I can do is be me, and you're gonna receive it the way you receive it. Now, if I'm a major dick, and you keep me in your life, that's a decision you made, maybe, Cognitively, maybe subconsciously, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, like, the only way that anybody ever damages me is if I allow them to damage me. Now, is all that conscious? No. Is you know, is does the other person maybe know a little bit more than I do? Maybe, sure. And they're doing it on purpose. They're a fucking asshole. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But the fact of the matter is, like, whatever damage comes onto me is with the stuff that I allowed in my life and the stuff that I continue to allow in my life. And it's the way I react to things. And to not give women the same fucking credit is. Is is in my perspective, it's derogatory. It's um, condescending. It's um, it's I don't know how else to say it except for it's just like misogynistic. Yeah. Um, what was the question again? Just that you know, if you were a lot of men grow out in, up in this sort of religious experience, you know, where you have everything carries more weight. You look at people and you have to make decisions about what they do or don't deserve, how you are to behave. And a lot of people who leave a religious upbringing, um, they either become misogynists or like they're baked in in terms of like believing that women control their behavior in some way, temptation and uh, the, the, the nice guy syndrome thing. Or they go this other route, which both of you, I mean, I'd like to hope I pick good friends, but part <laughs> of the reason that we're friends is that you're people who have decided to go in the other direction and believe that actually, despite what my upbringing says, that we live in an age of toxic masculinity and I think it prevents boys from growing into good men or to having the ability to explore their own life and their own purpose. Um, and I would say, like, for somebody who is veering down that second path, what would you hope they could take away oh, from this conversation? Oh, yeah. Okay. I think, so I have a twofold answer. Yeah. One... 
I think it's important to be honest with yourself who you are and who you want to become mm -hmm. and, and actually take some time to think about that. Um, for me, what was difficult post-exiting the church was, I, I, and I wrestle with this today, is what it means to be a man. What does it actually mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a good man? Um, because I think there's a lot, there's a lot of um, discussion around things like like gender identity, and all, there's there's a I could go on sort of a diatribe about my mm -hmm. philosophy on that. But at the end of the day, um, if you identify as a man, mm -hmm. um, and that means something to you, you need to be really honest about what that means to you. And then also be honest about like who you are right now. Because I think the problem is that we create realities for ourselves that don't actually jive with with, with the reality reality. We construct narratives yeah. to just just as you know, as Christians we created these narratives to help sort of explain reality and explain our interactions with other people our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to our sexuality and our, and our gender and everything, we created a narrative that was riddled with holes. <laughs> but it was a narrative nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. And we did all that we could to ignore evidence and to support falsehoods to make that narrative stand. Um, when we finally allowed it to break down, we had to create a new narrative. And um, whether we like it or not, even even in this exploratory phase, or if we're beyond that, whatever, you're, you're, we have to create a narrative that makes sense because that's a human being's work. And I think it's important if I were to, you know, to your question, talk to somebody who has chosen the other path. Was like just take a moment and consider the path that you're going down, yeah. and and take a, a few moments to be self-reflective, see what vector you're on, and see where it ends up. But because I think a lot of the times that. Trajectory of being like I need to take care of a woman. I, I to be a good man needs to like protect and, and care for a woman like that is Not blatant misogyny. That's you know, no, but I, I think the problem is that there's a lot of there's a, sexism. Yeah, there's there's a lot of assumptions on that path Yeah, that, that you take for granted yeah, but you don't see them because you're already assuming past them. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, if I were to if I were to say something to the people that have taken that particular path, it's like, just pause, like just stop and like take a moment and think about the end result. Like the the it, when you finally extrude your worldview to the nth degree, you're going to find that it actually results in some pain. Oh, extrapolate. Just keep, keep going. Keep, keep going. extrapolating. Just in your mind. It sends up. Because like yeah. the problem is like a lot of these assumptions are abstractions for hard thought that we don't really want to take. You know, I think, I, I said earlier, people just don't want to think difficult, they don't want to think hard thoughts, they don't want to think down difficult paths. And if you force someone to take stock of where they are and to really be self-examining, uh, self I think you can, I think it'll be, um, you can give someone the opportunity to see what that path will result in. The problem is like, people just often don't take that time and it's the reason I think a lot of people who you know stay in religion that don't that doesn't make any sense. They just don't take the time. They don't push pause and actually take stock of where they are. And I think that could potentially, not for everyone, maybe for a significant portion of men who are in that position, just need to like hit the pause button for one second and think about the the ultimate consequences of these actions. And you know I say that 
also understanding that there's some people you in the face of blatant evidence will never change their mind epistemic closure yeah my, my mom is believes that um, Trump was basically sent by God to rule this nation global warming is a hoax chemtrails are real and abortion is a mortal sin where we kill babies I am literally never going to convince her otherwise on yeah. any of those points yeah. and even if I took even if I like somehow took her mind and presented it with irrefutable evidence for a month straight, like she would never change her worldview. And so there's a certain point where when you look at a human being and give them an opportunity to, if you're a catalyst in their life to make them stop and take stock of where things are and give them an opportunity to think, sometimes they just, you're not going to change their mind, period. And at that point, it no longer becomes your responsibility to do anything. You just have to... It's their responsibility. I think part of unpacking the idea of things that are that are forbidden or stigmatized is, you know, we certainly try very hard in the course of this podcast to change people's minds, I think, a lot. You know, the idea that if you got to the, to the root of what life is like or to empathize with people who participate in something that's taboo or... You know, they, they have it as a personal practice. But then I think sometimes it's also about learning to live with when it's never going to be accepted. And, and just that you have to be okay even without this approval. That um, speaks to the difference of our, our perspective, I think. So tell me more. Because I always looked at this podcast as something that merely sheds light uh, at a subjective alternative perspective. Yeah. You know what I mean? To not, only, not to try to persuade somebody of, of what's, you know whatever, but like just merely shed a light that we all have perspectives and we all assume that we're all very similar on those perspectives, but in fact, we're not. We yeah. all consider things, different things to be taboo and for different reasons and at different times. Yeah. See, this is where I can tell I just presume that it's very <laughs> persuasive. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so this has been a wonderful conversation. And I think it's been, that this there, it's been more than two hours and it's been wonderful. I would say, um, is there sort of like anything else that you would hope somebody would take away from the transition from, from things that you hold as, you know, maybe your irrefutable worldview hmm. from, from somebody who has moved from, from something that maybe felt irrefutable at the time to accepting something outside of yourself? Yeah. You are okay. You're okay. <laughs> At the, there were so many times when I had to tell myself to slow down and recognize that I'm okay. Um, again, I'm sure there's, there's a million different um, starting points. Some people have been probably raised in Christian households similar to you and I, Drew, and some in different, like maybe Muslim or other religions that... That well, shit. We grew up in two different religions. Two different religions, but like assembly of God versus Men uh, right, right. Mennonite. <laughs> but my point is like there's there's religions and worldviews and perspectives and countries and whatever that I think hold people back. And I think what's interesting about this podcast and also this discussion is the the um, trying to give people the courage to make a decision to completely change um, their worldview out of something that's comfortable. And I think that one of the biggest things that we as humans want is this sense of just feeling okay in the world mm -hmm. and feeling okay in your own skin. 
And this, one of the simplest truths is that you're okay. Like, what if everyone in the world just recognized that they were okay? And um, I think no matter, like, you know, who's listening or who, you know, we would have this conversation with, there's an undeniable fact that's universally true and that's you're, you're okay as a human. Whether you're gay or trans or whatever, like, non, let's say, traditional... Um, worldview you need to establish to either reconcile who you are as a person with your past you're okay and that concept needs to just be like really reinforced because I think there's so much cognitive overhead that happens when you try to justify yourself to yourself that it inhibits a lot of forward progress yeah. if you can just be okay with yourself I think it gives you the inertia that you need to sort of achieve some escape velocity and then eventually become your own person. Yeah. Which is the ideal. Yeah. To become your own person. And to, to know that, that if you do, if you stop apologizing every second or, or considering again what problem there was with you, what you just did and what you're about to do, that the sun will rise tomorrow. <laughs> the sun will come out tomorrow. <laughs> it will. Like, life will go on. So um. my, my only summation of everything we've talked about today and, and the, the main bit of advice that I give to young people whenever I try to whenever I talk to anybody who, like, asks for advice, is listen to every time you say should. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's pretty real, yeah. Just listen to every time you say should. And they're like, why? It'll why fuck up your whole perspective. Because yeah. you're going to hear, you're hear yourself say should and think for a second, why did I say should? And you're like, oh, shit, rabbit hole. <laughs> and every time, it's going to be 25 rabbit holes a day. It's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> Well, thank you guys both. This has Fantastic. been this has been a lot for me, especially <laughs> as, as as from the outside looking in. I know I've learned a lot today, and I know it's it's a lot to share. Like digging into people's lives and their childhood is is quite a bit. So thank you both for sharing this with me. <laughs> Nuva rings as a form of currency. <laughs> I'm going to be laughing about that for a long time. <laughs> oh my gosh, this was such a fun interview. Uh, thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, shoot us an email, bandthispod at gmail.com. You're awesome. This was a great episode. We're going to have more episodes coming out for you shortly. If you have any recommendations, shoot us an email or tweet at us, at bandthispod on all the platforms. All right, thanks so much. Have a good one. Bye-bye.